Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Right now, there are thousands of Australians with cancer anxiously waiting for a potentially life-saving transplant. Some are going to die because there just aren't enough donors. And young Australians are the only ones who can help. I'm talking about bone marrow transplants. Later, you'll hear from a cancer patient who got this life-saving treatment, also from a donor. So if you've ever wondered what this is about, we're breaking it down. Also coming up, we get into that messy world of insurance. I know it sounds boring, but listen, what happens when you lose everything and you're not covered? First, though. Hack. It's about accessibility. The degree is the same on the transcript. It's the same on the diploma. There's no distinction whatsoever. On Triple J. Do you study online? It's not easy, but we're seeing more and more of it as the years go on. Maybe you've done a few courses through unis. How have you found it? Did you struggle? Did you like it? Let me know. 0439 757 There are some upsides, like if you work full-time or you've got family commitments, it gives you a bit more flexibility. But imagine if you found out the course that you're paying thousands of dollars to study through a university isn't actually being run by the uni at all. Not only that, your course material's out of date. Those lectures you're watching were pre-recorded years ago. And instead of, you know, legitimate tutors, your work's being overseen by gig workers who admit themselves that they're kind of hoodwinking you because even though you think they work for the uni, they don't. This is happening. It's a big story. It's been busted open by Ben Smee, a reporter with Guardian Australia. He's got the scoop and he's with us now. Hey, Ben, thanks for coming on Hack. No worries, Dave. Thanks for having me. I want to be clear here. We're talking about you know, courses being marketed as being run by major universities in Australia, but they're actually run by other companies. Take us through it. What's happening here? Yeah, absolutely. So the majority of these courses, not all of them, but the majority are kind of postgraduate courses. So we're talking about things like master's, uh, postgraduate um, certificate courses, um, uh, diploma sorts of courses. And what's happened is with this kind of post-COVID um, shift towards a lot of online education, um, there's demand from people for more flexible sorts of courses. What universities are increasingly doing is they're taking course materials that might have been um, originally created by an academic at the university and they're handing them to these third-party for-profit companies who are making a heap of money doing this in Australia. Um, but ultimately, they're the ones who are running the courses. Um, even though when you might sign up to do one of these courses, you sign up at the university website and you really think you're signing up for a course that's fundamentally run by the uni. And the other thing is students are probably not clear on what's going on here because the interaction they're having with coordinators of the course or whatever, it all looks like it's coming from the university, right? From university email addresses. Yeah, absolutely. And even staff at these third-party companies running the courses say they think they might, they're hoodwinking students because of the way that they interact with them via university email addresses that, you know, as, as far as the students are concerned, the kind of the company that's really running these courses doesn't exist. Um, and so, yeah, so there's obviously a lot of concerns about the way that 
that arrangement takes place and whether um, there is an element of deception that goes on in terms of, you know, when you do sign up and you pay, you know, thousands of dollars in some instances for a university course, you kind of expect that the university you sign up with is the one that's going to be running it. So what specific kinds of courses are we talking about? Yeah, we're definitely talking about mostly postgraduate sorts of courses, sorts of courses. So we're talking about graduate certificates, in some cases, masters, um, things that, uh, you know, sort of uh, very rarely, would, but even though there is some movement towards doing this in the undergraduate space, mo- most, most sort of undergraduate degrees are still run by the universities themselves. But uh, often it's the sort of thing that you might look to go to to get an additional professional qualification, for instance, to sort of be able to say, well, you know, I've done course X or course Y. But in some of the cases that we've come across, um, you know, students have complained that what they've actually been given when they've been doing these courses is little more than kind of a reading list or a little more than, um, you know, information that in some cases is out of date or that they could have really gone and looked up themselves. So I, I think there's some questioning going on now about the nature of these sorts of courses. What benefit do people get out of doing them? And is really the benefit all they get is the, you know, the the bit of paper with the university's name on it at the back end. Um, but, you know, do we actually expect um, that our university system runs in a different way, whether, you know, that there should be a certain quality of education kind of attached to getting a university degree at the end of the at the end of the day? We've got people messaging in already. Jasmine says, I did a three year degree at uni, spent about two years online watching old lectures um, that they didn't want to re-record. My course was a very hands-on degree, so doing it online was almost pointless and extremely difficult. We've got people messaging in now with their own experiences. You've got examples, Ben, of this happening at QUT. Do we know if other unis are doing the same thing? Yeah, I, I mean, most Australian universities have an arrangement with what's called an online program manager or OPM company. In fact, there are very few. There's only a handful of Australian universities that don't. All up, we're talking about something like 850 separate courses that are now being run by OPMs rather than the university. So one of one of the things that I think sort of set off our reporting on this was, you know, universities themselves have on some level been relatively open about the fact, oh, we've done a deal with this co- with this course provider to run these sorts of courses. But what's happened kind of a little bit quietly and and you know and very very quickly is the real ramp up. Um, and, and, and I think it, it's possibly scared some people to see the extent to which you have these commercial for-profit companies ultimately with a, with a huge foothold in our university sector, which we kind of look at and think we expect to be a not-for-profit sort of a sector. You know, universities are created by Acts of Parliament and they're regulated very heavily, but you know, you couldn't you, you couldn't have a company decide, oh, I want to come in and buy the University of Sydney, for instance. But th- this almost a kind of a corporate takeover by stealth occurring in some of these instances where you have such a large number of courses suddenly being delivered by these for-profit companies. And they're not just delivering course materials. They're doing things like recruitment. Don't know if anyone's tried to sign up for one of these online courses, but the, accru- the recruitment um, can be quite aggressive. You know, talking about people who reckon they've been called four or five times in a really short space of time after expressing an interest. Um, they're running everything from recruitment to student welfare. Um, it's really fundamentally the outsourcing of these courses by universities. Actually, I had that. I, you know, was expressed interest in something and then was being hassled all the time, like on an almost daily basis. It was crazy. The other wild thing, Ben, is you spoke with not just like students, but also. For 
former lecturers, teachers, right, who didn't even work in that capacity anymore and was surprised to hear that their material was still being used? Yeah, and we've spoken to, to multiple people. There's one quoted in our piece, but I've, I've spoken to multiple university lecturers who said they've been contacted by people out of the blue saying, oh, I'm in your course or, you know, or can I find out some information about this? Now, what that person has done is maybe two, three years ago created some content that ultimately then gets packaged up, given to these for-profit companies, and their name might still be in the core on the course, or their you know a recording of their lecture might still be on the course, and students have actually thought that this is the academic who's running my course and who I could go to and ask a question about, and in some cases these academics are saying they're quite you know almost bemused because they haven't been involved. One case, an academic who left the university years ago and was told, told by someone, oh, well, I'm in your class. Like, I think that more than anything to me kind of illustrates the yeah. fact that it's not something that's kind of being, you know, th- there's a lack of disclosure here to people about how this is really operating. You're listening to Hackham, Dave Marchese, speaking with reporter Ben Smee from The Guardian about his story on these online you know, courses that universities have basically handed over to private companies to run without students knowing. Ben, what are the universities saying? Um, I mean, the universities certainly say that um, students are enrolled with the university when they enrol, that their courses are created by academics and that academics play a kind of a quality control role over these courses, if you like. So certainly they're being run by these third-party companies, but uh, sort of, you know, I I think universities are kind of saying in a way that we're kind of, um, you know, licensing or playing some sort of a kind of a quality control role rather than actually delivering the content themselves. And and I think what they and the education companies kind of say and, uh, and I guess talk about is the fact that there is a demand uh, in the modern world, particularly post-COVID, for that online-only sort of education, a deg- degree or diploma courses or whatever you like, that give people a bit of flexibility to be able to kind of come and go, to be able to do, you know, listen to lectures when they need to listen to lectures, to be able to kind of ask a question at any time of day or night to fit around work or other study or whatever the case may be. And, you know, and I mean, that's certainly true, right? Like we're in a, we're in a pretty different world to what we were in kind of 15 years ago or even just pre pandemic when it comes to that sort of stuff. But at the same time, I, I guess the concern that we're writing about is not so much just this whole like online versus in person education and what's best. Like that's absolutely not what it's about. What we're kind of talking about is the use of these for profit companies at the back end and whether that's something that, you know, ultimately leads to people getting a poor education or leads to kind of problems in the sector or whatever else. And I think the fact that we don't know enough about this in general, I mean, this is something that's been happening for a long time and and our piece is kind of the first that a lot of people have really even heard that it is. Uh, We haven't really had that conversation about whether we're happy for for for-profit companies to be working in our uni sector or not. And, Um, and, you know, take a lot of people by surprise, I think. And Ben, what about the companies themselves? What are they saying? Like, have you managed to talk about them about how they're running these courses? Yeah, I mean, the the companies themselves, we asked a few for some comment for our pieces. We didn't didn't hear back. But we know from kind of reading their own material that they – um, pitch themselves as offering something, you know, being able to kind of have expertise in course design, for instance. Um, you know, the examples that we've been able to find certainly raise concern, but, uh, you know, we're careful not to say that this is every single one of these courses is being run in that sort of matter. 
uh, sort of manner rather. But I think it'd be very different. You know, one of, one of the things that um, one of the reasons that this is attractive to these companies and universities is because you can kind of reuse content year after year after year. Now, if you're running a maths course, for instance, that's probably okay because, you know, the numbers kind of don't change at the end of the day. But if you're running something like a domestic violence course, which we we're talking about today, or something that maybe is, you know, responsive to kind of changes in the law or changes in statistics or whatever the case may be, you know, content gets old very quickly. Mm. And so the benefit of reusing that course material kind of goes away pretty quickly too. Well, look, it's something that I'm sure a lot of students probably weren't aware of. They want to be aware of though. It is happening, affects a lot of people. Ben Smee from Guardian Australia, appreciate your work on this and for explaining it to us on Hack. Thanks very much, Dad. Hack. If you're out there and you're going through this process, think to yourself, there's somebody out there who's got cancer. On Triple J. We like to think of ourselves as a pretty generous country. Like if someone asked you for a hand, I'm sure you'd do anything you could to help. But there's one area where we're really falling behind. And unsurprisingly, it's something you probably don't know much about. Bone marrow donation. It can save the lives of people with blood cancers, but sadly thousands of Australians die waiting for transplants because we're falling behind the rest of the world. Other countries have seen their bone marrow donor lists grow by more than 200% over the past few years. In Australia, ours has increased by just 24%. Eight out of 10 Aussie patients are relying on overseas donors. And the thing is, only people under 35 are eligible to donate bone marrow and stem cells to people with blood cancer. It's clear we don't know enough about it. So how does it work? Shalala Madora explains. I think I just went into complete shock. Never in her wildest dreams did Nakia Love think she'd get diagnosed with cancer aged just 30. She was pregnant and short of breath when she went to the emergency room at her local hospital in Wollongong last year. No one was giving me answers. Nakia had to undergo test after test and after two days in hospital, one of the doctors dropped a bombshell. The blood test that we received last night in ED have come back and something looks a little sinister. And um, and he said, look, we think that there might be leukaemia. Leukaemia is blood cancer, which begins in the bone marrow, the squishy, spongy substance inside your bones that makes blood cells. Nakia was told she'd need to start chemo in Sydney straight away. Her cancer was really aggressive, so she couldn't wait till her baby was born to start treatment. Sadly, after chemo started, her baby girl didn't make it. We were told to have Friday to go home and grieve. Yeah, we're in on the Monday, yeah, straight into every other chemo protocol. Despite the pain and heartbreak that Nakia and her husband went through, this isn't a sad story. Nakia describes herself as a deeply optimistic person. Half-class full girl. The moment Nakia started chemo, she began the often difficult search for a bone marrow donor. Nakia's optimism paid off. So it was close to four, four and a half months later that we actually had found out that I had a match from Germany. If Nakia's audio sounds a bit weird, it's because she's speaking to me on her laptop from her hospital bed in Sydney. There are wires and machines beeping and nurses coming in and out of her room. Nakia had her stem cell transplant just a week before we spoke. She says you can't imagine the relief of being matched with a donor. 
one of the most terrifying parts is that waiting to know if there is somebody out there that can match to you. There are two ways you can help people like Nakia who have blood cancer. The first is donating that jelly-like marrow directly through surgery. The second, and most common, is donating the stem cells that can be found in bone marrow so that the sick person can create their own healthy cells. Donating your stem cells used to be a really big deal, but it isn't these days. That's Lisa Smith, head of the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry. As she explains, around 90% of donors can donate the stem cells through a super simple process. Four injections over four days, and then those injections are making your blood stem cells uh, grow like crazy, right? Multiply and spill out into your bloodstream. And then you'll spend a morning sitting in a chair while your blood is taken out and those stem cells are filtered, and then your blood is given back to you. The injections can cause some side effects like muscle pain, nausea and fatigue. The process of collection takes about half a day and is similar to donating blood. The remaining 10% of people have to have an operation to get the bone marrow out directly. I had my procedure in the morning where I was put under general anaesthesia for about an hour and a half where they extracted the bone marrow from my back, my hips. Donors like 25-year-old Luca Kovac. He heard about the bone marrow donor registry through Insta. After a year on the registry, Luca was told he was a match for a young kid with cancer in New Zealand. He needed to have the surgical procedure though. For me, there were no after effects. I was like back at the gym a week later. So uh, I guess people just think that it's gonna be a lot more painful or a lot more effort than it actually is. Some people may get a match through family, but it's rarer than you think. If you have brothers and sisters, there's about a 25% chance that one of them will match. So three out of four people rely on strangers. And at the moment, Australia has a massive shortage of bone marrow and stem cell donors. Over eight out of 10 Australian patients will end up depending on an overseas donor. The only people who can get on the donor registry are young people aged 18 to 35. Yeah, pretty much surviving off machines and doctors and science. Nakia still has a long recovery ahead of her. If she'd relied just on chemo, the chances are that her blood cancer would have returned within a few years. By comparison, having the transplant means it's possible she'll be cancer-free forever. You can literally save someone's life by just doing something so small. She has this message for anyone thinking of donating. You could be a real-life superhero. She hopes one day to meet her own real-life hero. I would love to drink a beer with him at Oktoberfest in Germany and send him out to Australia if he's never been. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think we share the same DNA. Like, my DNA has now become his DNA. He's essentially part of me and I'm part of him. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Maduro with that story. Important one. Affects so many people in Australia, around the world. Somebody on the text line says we need high-profile Australians to publicise their bone marrow contributions and transplants to help show regular Australians how they can help and raise awareness. And, yeah, if you want to learn more, you can go to the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry website. Got all the details there as well. Hack! So I've got home insurance, but not contents insurance. I don't really own anything of value. On Triple J. Yeah, how much do you think about insurance? I'm serious. Health insurance, car insurance, 
what about home and contents insurance? Maybe you're thinking, sorry, I'm struggling to pay my rent. Dave, what are you talking about? This is a luxury I cannot afford. Probably that's true. So what happens, though, if you lose everything, if it's in a natural disaster or a freak accident? We've seen too much of that over the past few years. Maybe you were one of those that was caught out not having insurance. You lost your work tools, your equipment. How did you deal with it? Or you know that you should have insurance, but you just can't afford it. Let me know. 0439757555. The thing is, it's so complicated. Often it's hard to know where to start with something like this. And with the pile of other debts that are racking up around you, is it worth it? Well, Angel Parsons has been taking a look. So that's the studio now. That metal frame in the middle was my workbench. These are all my tools just melted together. Yeah, they just melted everything. Oh my God, where where, where where do you even begin? Yeah, it's pretty devastating. This is Will Versace. He's 27 and an artist based in Sydney. And recently his life got completely derailed saw this massive blaze at the back of the studio and then I kept reaching for the fire extinguisher but like just kept burning my arm. I just realised that it was just, you know, game over. Once I like looked how close it was to all my gas bottles for welding and stuff. So I ran out and then as soon as I ran out, I just heard like like everything just started exploding. Weeks away from his first ever exhibition, Will lost his tools, materials, his artworks, which he reckons was probably more than 100 grand worth of stuff accumulated over the years. I've been working on that for probably like a few years now and if I don't do that, then I'm completely (laughs) monetarily. Will says he's not exactly well off and his income as a young artist is low and inconsistent. And in the middle of trying to clean up, finish work for this exhibition and really just get out of bed every day with a brave face, he has copped it. I've had lots of people be like, oh, what, you didn't have insurance? That's a bit silly, isn't it? But that's all just from people with really stable incomes, you know. The truth is, Will says it just wasn't a priority and it also wasn't financially viable for him. And it's important to note here that if you're running a home business or have contents tied to your business, that can be different from home contents and you might need to look at another business-specific insurance. But Will's story got me thinking. We know we're seeing more natural disasters. And I checked the Bureau of Statistics website. About 9% of households experienced some type of household crime between 2021 and 22. Stuff like break-ins and property damage. So I thought I'd hit up an expert in insurance to find out what we should or shouldn't be worrying about when it comes to contents. It will cover anything that's essentially not um, pinned down in your home. So things like laptops, curtains, lounge, that kind of thing. This is Jody Bird from Choice, and in his job, he reads those things we're always told to read, product disclosure statements. This is general advice and may not be right for you. Consider the PDS. It's hard to tell you how much your contents insurance would cost because it depends on how much your stuff is worth, where you live, what your place is made out of, etc. But comparison website Finder recently got quotes from a bunch of insurers and found contents only cover to average about 44 bucks a month. That's for a three-bedroom place with 100 
grand worth of contents. And Jody says, whether contents insurance is worth it or right for you will vary from person to person. A lot of people who are renting um, might not think to cover their contents, and that might be a valid thing. Um, It's really worth counting up your value of your contents and deciding whether you need to actually get them insured or not. Um, What tends to happen with contents, you know, you just kind of think I've got stuff lying around the house and it's not worth a lot. It can be worth going to a calculator. If something happened to those, if there was a flood or they got stolen, what it would cost you to replace the absolutely essential items to your living and whether you can afford that. And he says there's a lot of stuff to consider that you might not realise. For example, if you take your items out of the house with you or if they're used to run a business, that might impact your cover. Yeah, not being covered for something when you thought you were covered is uh, something that happens a lot with uh, all types of insurance. So, unfortunately, you have to read the PDS. But it is a personal choice, and even going through the worst situation, Will says he doesn't beat himself up. I think I'd never, ever considered getting insurance because, like, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that story. And, yeah, I've got... Lots of messages coming through, people who've been in tricky situations, who haven't had insurance, learnt the hard way. It's tough, especially if it's something you just can't afford. Look, I want to find out more. James Martin's with us. He's the insurance editor at Finder. Hey, James, thanks for joining us on Hack. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me. Do you get asked a lot of questions from young people struggling to find out about insurance because it is complicated isn't it like if it's something you're not knowing a lot about it can it can feel like a a bit of a nightmare absolutely i mean it's um it's confusing at the best of times and unfortunately the insurers uh, don't particularly make things easier for you so those uh those policies that we just mentioned earlier they can be kind of a hundred pages or so long so it's kind of like it's it's very confusing and hard to know where, where to start. I often get asked, you know, are, is X insurance worth it? That's probably the, the biggest question that I face as a, you know, my role in working as an insurance editor. And what should you be looking for when you're hunting down insurance policies, potentials? What are the kinds of things that you should keep an eye out for? Yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, I just heard earlier there talking about content um, insurance. Um, I think if you're, it really depends on your situation, like all insurances, right? So you don't turn a certain age and then suddenly you need to protect your things. You kind of need to protect them whenever. Um, some people say, okay, when you've hit a life stage where you've got more, bigger possessions, you know, bigger TV, designer clothes and all that kind of stuff, that's when you might want to look at content insurance. But then I'd say on the other hand, if you just moved home and you're renting for the first time, you've got, maybe you've got less stuff. Mm. Actually, that stuff might be more important. So if you've got... Um, you know, you rely on your laptop for work or something. If you lose that, then the question is, do you have enough money to replace it? I think it's already mentioned that, you know, the the contents insurance can cover around $20,000 worth of your possessions. So I think, you know, thinking about your personal stuff like that is really important, a good good kind of starting place. Um, You know, and then there's other types of insurance like health insurance where there's kind of tax benefits, direct tax benefits, once you turn a certain age, like after 31, and maybe you move off your parents' policy, things like that. So it kind of, again, it just really depends on your kind of personal situation, how much money you've got in the bank to to spend. I know some research that we did said that one in 10 have actually cut or reduced um, their cover in the past year. So clearly people are really looking at this budget and, you know, their budgets and going, 
can I actually afford it? I actually did one myself just as a new uh, homeowner. And after my mortgage and food, it's actually health insurance. So I'm on, you know, me and my wife on pregnancy cover. It's the top tier cover. So that was my third biggest expense. So it's a, it's a serious um, cost is a serious thing at the moment for people, yeah. We, we've got some messages coming through. Someone says, my housemate, my housemates and I had all our laptops and a bunch of jewellery stolen years ago and I've had contents insurance ever since then. Another person says, I'm an insurance broker. Also good to note that insurers are trying to find more and more reasons to decline claims. If you have a business at your home, this needs to be declared as it is a disclosure question. Um, that's an interesting mm. point there. Uh, is, some, is insurance something you should be revisiting all of the time, James, like checking that you've got a good deal or someone else isn't offering something better? Yeah, great, great question. Look, um, I would say at least once per year, I'd be jumping on you know the comparison sites like Finder. Some of the government sites are really good too. And actually seeing if you are on the best deal. No two policies are the same. No two policies cover the same uh, inclusions and exclusions. Again, if you're, if you're looking at, if you're fi- feeling overwhelmed by an insurance policy, you could jump into the exclusions part. You know, I think it's, if you're on your laptop, it's control F or in, in command F, and then you can actually search some of those terms. I'd go for exclusions and the policy statements, they also have key features. That's another one to, that you can search up. And then if you find those keywords that you're looking for, then you can quickly find a bit more information rather than having to go through all the policies. And again, if you're, you know, like a sidelight finder and you're looking side by side, at, we, we list quite clearly the benefits, um, what's included and what isn't included. I think on the question yeah. of, uh, you know, a lot of the optional extras we've seen yeah. flood cover is not automatically included and that's really caught that's that's a big point and, and we have heard yeah during the floods a lot of people talking about that hey james martin from finder very much appreciate your time thank you so much for that hack on triple j and that's all we've got time for on the hack podcast for now i'll catch you next time